Laura Stevenson Carter, Associate Editor at Dartmouth Medicine Magazine. I'm talking today with Dr. James Burnett, a professor of neurology at Dartmouth Medical School and head of the Ethics Committee at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Dr. Burnett is an internationally recognized medical ethicist. Reporters from prominent media outlets, from the New York Times to People Magazine, often ask him to comment on major ethics cases, especially those involving brain death. He was quoted widely, for example, on Terry Schiavo, the Florida woman who lived for 15 years in a permanent vegetative state. Her husband, parents, and the courts fought a very public battle over whether to remove her feeding tube and let her die naturally. At one point, the governor of Florida stepped in and said that new evidence suggested she was really in a minimally conscious state, so the feeding tube should not be removed. Terry Schiavo was finally allowed to die in 2005. Dr. Burnett, could you tell us a little more about that case and why it was so controversial? The case elicited controversy because of several factors. First, there was the very well-publicized dispute among her family in which her husband claimed that it was her wish to be allowed to die, and it was her parents' contention that she retain the feeding tube to live. Uh, and this dispute was hyped by the media almost like reality television. A second reason is that there was a dispute over whether she was actually unaware and in a vegetative state or whether she was in uh, a minimally conscious state in which some awareness was present. Uh, the third reason is there w this matter was taken up politically, uh, particularly by the religious right that ideologically framed it as a Manichaean dichotomy of the culture of life versus the culture of death, and uh, framed it as if the uh, right to life or the culture of life people wanted her to live, and the culture of death or euthanasia abortion people uh, wanted her to die. And this created a lot of controversy within the society intended to polarize any uh, discussions of the issue. So what is the difference between persistent vegetative state and a minimally conscious state? Both of these states reveal <clears throat> people who have profound unresponsiveness. But in a vegetative state, although the patient's eyes are open when they're awake and closed when they're asleep, there's no evidence that the patient is aware of herself or her environment. So it's some people have called it eyes open coma because there's complete unawareness. A minimally conscious state, on the other hand, as the name implies, although the person is profoundly unresponsive, there is some element of awareness of self and environment so that the person can respond in some way, showing evidence of awareness, such as reaching for and grasping objects, grunting a response <clears throat> to a question, following a command, uh, or uh, following an item uh, with the, the person's eyes as it moves around the room uh, so that the minimally conscious has a qualitative difference to persistent vegetative in that the minimally conscious person shows some evidence of awareness, whereas the vegetative person shows none. And what causes the two, and how are the two states diagnosed? The most common cause for both is traumatic brain injury. 
other causes, such as in the case of Mrs. Shivo, a cardiac arrest causing brain damage from lack of oxygen to the brain uh, is another common cause. Diagnosis is conducted mostly by neurological examination by a skilled examiner who searches for evidence of responsiveness and awareness. Uh, Ancillary testing can be done that can help also involving things like electroencephalography or uh, scans of the brain and a lot of exciting work being, is being done now in functional neuroimaging. Can someone ever regain consciousness once they are in a persistent vegetative state? There have been stories from time to time about people miraculously waking up from a coma. Were they in a persistent vegetative state? People can recover from a vegetative state depending on the duration that it has gone on and what caused it. There's been a lot of study by neurologists and neurosurgeons to determine the prognosis of the vegetative state. Uh, And and guidelines have been drawn. And the rough guidelines are that if the vegetative state is caused by lack of oxygen to the brain, and if there's been no recovery at all in three months, that it's very unlikely that there ever will be recovery to awareness. In the setting of traumatic brain injury, uh, one would have to wait a year without evidence of recovery to achieve the same certainty that there would be no improvement. But there certainly are instances of people recovering. What about the 2006 case of a 23-year-old British woman who was in a car accident? She was in a persistent vegetative state. But five months later, a functional MRI showed brain activity when she was asked to imagine playing tennis or walking through her house. How is that possible? Well, this is the very uh, famous and well-reported case of Adrian Owen and colleagues from Cambridge University in the UK uh, that was published in Science Magazine. Um, This is a woman, as you say, young woman, who suffered a traumatic brain injury, five months later remained in a vegetative state as determined by very skilled examiners. And when they gave her the ideational tasks to perform, such as those that you mentioned, um, the patterns that were activated on her functional MRI brain scan were somewhat similar to those activated by a normal person asked to to imagine the same activities. Um, Owen and colleagues felt this was very strong evidence that she was in fact aware of herself and her environment, even though she wasn't able to show that to examiners who performed neurological examinations. Um, This is somewhat controversial, and not all scientists accept that it is evidence that she is aware although I've spoken with Adrian Owen about this and have looked at a lot of the other data about that case, um, and I feel that it is a valid instance in which the functional MRI showed evidence that the person had awareness when the physical examination did not, and therefore it's a very, very important uh, finding, and it's one that raises the question, is this a common occurrence, or was this a a freak case that's very rare? Uh, 
and uh, it is necessary to uh, study further. Uh, and many people feel that functional MRI may become a clinical tool that we should use in testing whether or not these patients have some degree of awareness. But at the moment, it's still a research tool and it's not used clinically. I would add as a postscript in the Adrian Owen case that 11 months after the accident, she spontaneously improved and no longer was in a vegetative state and was able to respond. So it's possible that the fMRI findings can detect evidence of spontaneous improvement before they become clinically evident. Um, I don't know her current state, so I don't know what's happened in the last year and a half. There have also been cases where deep brain electrical stimulation has helped someone in a minimally conscious state regain brain function. Can people regain normal brain function and resume normal living that way? There was one reported case by Nicholas Schiff from Cornell New York, New York uh, Hospital um, of a patient who had been minimally conscious and stable for six years whose fMRI showed evidence that his medial thalamic nuclei were not damaged by the lesion that caused the minimally conscious state. Schiff and colleagues theorized that if that could be stimulated electrically, maybe it would improve his function. So they uh, did that with the ordinary deep brain stimulation paradigm, which is done typically on patients with Parkinson's disease, and reported that this uh, person improved while the stimulator was on, able to talk and uh, had a much higher functional level, and then when the stimulator was off, reverted to the minimally conscious state behavior. So this was a very exciting and important report of a single case that was highly selected where there was a certain uh, critical nuclei in the medial thalamus that remained intact and were stimulatable and where uh, it could respond. So uh, I think this told us that um, this should be at least a consideration in people in minimally conscious state who have intact medial thalamic nuclei. And like so many things, it's a single research case and it requires a lot more study before it becomes clinically applicable. And the section of the brain you're referring to? The thalamus is a gray matter nucleus on each side of the brain, uh, deep in the cerebral hemisphere, that has a complex function. It has a motor function, a sensory function, and a cognitive memory function. Uh, and it is the nucleus that is most frequently destroyed in people in a vegetative state, such as Karen Ann Quinlan. Um, and also it's commonly damaged in people in a minimally conscious state. What's the difference between brain death and irreversible brain damage? Brain death is a circumstance where the damage from injury or illness to the brain has so profound and widespread that it permanently abolishes all brain functions. It is a condition 
that is relatively easily recognized by a neurological examination and one that can be confirmed using different laboratory techniques such as a simple technique showing no circulation to the brain because the pressure in the skull exceeds arterial blood pressure so no blood can enter the skull. That is not only the correct conceptual definition of death, but it's also the legal definition of death in all of the uh, states in the United States and provinces in Canada and many other countries. Once a person has qualified as uh, brain dead after this series of examinations, they are declared dead and all treatment is stopped, all tubes are removed, and they're taken to the morgue unless they're used as an organ donor. We would like to encourage organ donation and to hope that families permit organ donation of their brain-dead family members to make some good of an otherwise uh, meaningless death. Um, now, if a person has sustained irreversible brain damage but not to the extent that they can be determined brain dead because of the persistence of some functions. For example, if they continue breathing a little, or if their pupil reacts to light by constricting, or if they're moving, or some other function that shows that they can't be brain dead because there's still some evidence of neurological functioning even though there's profound brain damage. In many of these cases, when the brain damage is shown to be severe and irreversible, family members will ask to allow for the person to be allowed to die by taking out their breathing tube or stopping other forms of treatment. And uh, this is a situation that is commonly encountered in intensive care units where we do what is called withdrawing life-sustaining therapy from profoundly brain-damaged patients. And it's done, the ethical standard is, there should be evidence that this is how the person himself or herself wished to be treated in this circumstance. And that evidence can be by advanced directive or by some con conversation or communication with another person. Um, but the important distinction is that if you qualify for brain death, you're legally dead. And no one has to be asked about stopping anything. Um, everything is simply stopped. Whereas if you don't qualify for brain death, but you have severe uh, permanent brain damage, uh, families may ask to uh, the doctors to withdraw further life-sustaining therapy to allow the person to die if that's in accordance with that person's wishes. So if somebody has irreversible brain damage, they may be in a persistent vegetative state? Correct. They could be in a vegetative state, they could be in a coma, they could be um, in a minimally conscious state, or in uh, some other type of thing. Those, are, those states are all descriptive syndromes that share certain features in common. I know some people are concerned that someday they might be in a coma 
doctors might say they have irreversible brain damage and they're never going to wake up. But people are afraid that they're really aware inside. And so how certain are doctors that brain damage is irreversible? That's a very important question. Uh, it's incumbent in any physician, in particular neurologists, who are the ones called upon most often to make this determination, to be certain that when they say a patient is unconscious, the patient is unconscious. It is incumbent on them to do very careful neurological examinations, searching for any evidence of awareness, any responsiveness, any clue that deep down in there someone might still be aware and sensate before making a determination that they're vegetative or in a coma. Uh, I've certainly seen cases in which physicians at other institutions have alleged that someone was in a vegetative state, and when I examined them, I thought they were had evidence of awareness, and I would have called them in a minimally conscious state. It also means that when we're not absolutely sure, and maybe all the time, we should talk to patients who are like this. And in the case that perhaps there is some possibility that they remain aware, it would be humane to talk to them as if they were aware and to err on the side of doing that, even though uh, it may look foolish. Uh, I'm, uh, the longer I practice uh, and the more patients I see, the more humble I become because I see cases in which I would have thought for sure one thing and then it turns out that there may be uh, some room for variation. A good example is this Adrian Owen case where they all thought she was totally vegetative, yet the fMRI showed that she was probably had some degree of awareness. And they were very surprised. And uh, So I think that we all could use a large dose of humility about this uh, and only tell families of patients uh, what we're absolutely certain of and not speculate. So will the functional MRI be used to help diagnose? I think the future is very bright in that regard, and uh, we will be using fMRI once it becomes more standardized uh, and we learn what the margins are of error and how valuable it is. We've got a few very provocative cases in which it seems as if it's going to become important. Um, I would say within five or eight years, it will probably become commonplace among those institutions that have access to fMRI that we will use it clinically. What does the future hold for those who have suffered severe brain damage? Do you think stem cells might one day be grown to replace damaged parts of the brain? What else is going on? Well, these types of experiments are currently ongoing for therapy using stem cells or transplanted cells to try to stimulate areas of the brain to make uh, chemicals or to grow. Um, so I think that there's a lot of um, exciting uh, excitement in the future about new therapeutic initiatives. There are also new diagnostic initiatives. Uh, multimodality screening using diffusion, uh, tensor weighted imaging on MRI plus 
quantitative EEG plus fMRI. Uh, that combination is being looked at at a number of institutions. I think that within several years, we will have breakthroughs diagnostically also, and not just therapeutically. Any final thoughts? Well, this is an exciting time to be a neurologist interested in ethics and interested in brain function. Uh, it's an opportunity for a clinician to be involved in public policy regarding death determination and organ transplantation to be involved with uh, religions of the world as they grapple with some of these issues. Uh, and it's a, a very exciting uh, time to be a professor of neurology. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. We've been talking with Dr. James Burnett, a professor of neurology at Dartmouth Medical School. This is Laura Stevenson-Carter for Dartmouth Medicine Magazine.